We're looking this morning at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This is really the end of a unit in which Isaiah is prophesying, beginning in Isaiah 7, 1, and ending here at the end of our passage at Isaiah 9, 7. That's a single unit. And interesting, in that unit, we find those two great incarnational Christmas prophecies. We find that the virgin would conceive in Isaiah 7 and would bear a son and would name him Emmanuel, God with us. And here in Isaiah 9, at the end of this unit, we find the second Christmas prophecy. And that is that a son would be born, a child would be born, a son would be given, and his name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so we're looking this morning at Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down to the end of verse 7. And as Isaiah is bringing this self-contained segment to a close, and he is addressing the judgment that is to come on Judah and all that Judah is suffering and the threat of Assyria coming against Ahaz and against Judah in particular. Now Isaiah says, but... There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts. We'll do this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know if you are one of those families. We have never been one of those families, but have known many of them that send out an annual Christmas letter. And that is a tradition for many families in our country. Um, One thing that I have noticed is that I have neither received a Christmas letter Nor have I known anyone who has written a Christmas letter that read something like this. This past year has been awful. The children are failing school. Everyone's sick. It's been horrible. Pray for us. But Christ is born. It would seem odd. On those very difficult years, I imagine families that write Christmas letters make the executive decision not to write a Christmas letter and just to post something on social media, a picture or something. But the reason I bring that up is that Isaiah, in a very real sense, is writing a Christmas letter here in between chapter 7, verse 1, and 9, verse 7. 
This is Isaiah inserting into his prophetic message to Judah, to Ahaz, to that rebellious kingdom. He is inserting into that, that in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the chastisement, in the midst of the gloom, in the midst of the heaviness and the burdens that God was bringing on his people because of their rebellion, in the midst of them seeking mediums and, and sorcerers rather than the Lord, in the midst of all that darkness and that horrible condition in which Ju- Judah finds itself, Isaiah says, the virgin will conceive, we will call his name Emmanuel, and for unto us a child is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Now it's this marvelous picture we touched on this briefly last time. It is, it is a light out of darkness. That's how Isaiah notices, notice he begins this section in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That was the, the slogan of the Reformation, post-tenebrous lux, out of darkness light. That the light shines most brightly in the darkness, and God does his greatest works in the time when it would be least expected, in a time when things seemed all despair. And yet, in the midst of that condition, in the midst of Isaiah prophesying against an ungodly king and an ungodly people, he is giving great hope about what God, having promised David so long before in the Davidic covenant, that God was going to make good. He was going to establish his kingdom. He was going to bring a redeemer And he was going to be the hope of that people, and not just that people, but all of us, the nations. I want us to consider just two things this morning. First, I want us to consider the blessing of the coming Redeemer, the blessing of the coming Redeemer. And then I want us to consider the character of the coming Redeemer, the blessing and the character. We'll notice there in chapter 9, and and you would have to go back and read some out of chapter 8 to understand what Isaiah is saying. Notice he says there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now that, that is an odd statement because everything about Judah at this time was gloom. In fact, things had gone from bad to worse. You'll remember if you were here that Assyria was coming against Ahaz and against Judah. And, and now one of the Assyrian kings has been replaced by Sennacherib, and the threat has increased. We read about this in Chronicles. The threat has increased, and, and, and things have gone from bad to worse. And yet, Isaiah can say in the midst of that, there will be no gloom. Um, notice the, the great problem Notice verse 11 of chapter 8. For the Lord spoke thus with me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Notice, notice this. Notice that he says, he will become a sanctuary, a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And then notice verse 19, inquire, when they say to you, inquire the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Notice this, to the teaching, to the law and to the testimony, 
If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light, no dawn. Now, what the Lord is saying is in the midst of this chastisement, in the midst of this threat that he's sending on his people for their disobedience, instead of them seeking him, they go to the mediums and the sorcerers. Uh, Ahaz himself, remember we said, was trying to take matters into his own hands. In fact, if you go through Isaiah, that is the constant thread is stop trusting in things other than the Lord. Trust in the Lord, I'll deliver you. And yet the people are constantly going to something other than the covenant God, other than the only one that can help them. They are constantly going, trying to solve their problems, trying to fix their situation. And if I can say this this morning, that is indicative of all of us. When, when the Lord sends hardship, we often scramble. We try to figure out a way to get out in front of it. We try to figure out a way to evade it. We try to figure out a way to put ourselves in a place where we won't be subject to it. And, and the message of Scripture is that you can't do that. No matter where you run, there is, there is darkness. It is a dark and fallen world. And yet in the midst of that, as Isaiah is writing this letter, he is going to insert this this Christmas blessing, this incarnational blessing, God is going to do something. God is going to intervene, and notice this. He says in verse 9, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light shone. Now, Um, when Isaiah comes to give the blessings of the coming Redeemer here. He's going to set out three blessings. The first is light out of darkness. The second is joy where there was despondency. And the third is liberation where there was bondage. There is going to be light out of darkness. There's going to be joy where there was despondency and desperation. And there is going to be liberty where there was bondage. Notice God is going to give light out of darkness. You know, it's interesting, if you were to read through the Bible, if you were to take a marker, a red marker, and you were to mark up every instance of light and darkness, from Genesis 1, when God commanded light to shine out of darkness, and you would see after the fall all the references to light and darkness, you would see that God is weaving together in redemptive history this beautiful story that he is a God of light, that as one old writer says, God is always facing the light. His back is on the evening. His face is toward the waxing light, the rising sun. R.A. Finlayson says this. If that was true in the natural creation, it is blessedly true in the spiritual creation. Think about that. A creation, there was darkness, and God's face is to the light, and God says, let there be light. And the story of redemptive history is that There is darkness over this fallen world, and you are part of that dark world. I am part of that dark world. We are part of the fallen, dark, dead, rebellious, sinful world, and yet in the midst of that, God's face is to the light. His back is to the darkness. Finlayson says this, when God shines in our hearts with spiritual illumination, It is twilight in our souls. We see, though we see dimly. Yet God comes with waxing light, and as God's work develops, the light progresses 
until eventually it reaches noonday splendor. It's a marvelous statement of what God does. God is committed to shining light into this dark world, and not just into this dark world, but into our dark minds and hearts. And so the Lord under that figure says there will be no gloom. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light shone. Um, You know, Jesus, when he comes, he doesn't pull any punches. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light, John tells us. John the Baptist was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness to the light. That was the true light, giving light to all men coming into the world. Um, He is the light of the world. He is Malachi, will give us another great incarnational prophecy, and and he'll say, for you who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in his wings. I I made a Christmas card for a church I was involved in once and and quoted that, Hail the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N. And one of the elders came up and said, you misspelled that. I said, no, I didn't. You don't know your Bible. Malachi calls him the Son of Righteousness. He's the only source of light. In the midst of a dark world, God is going to give one source of light. And as the sun gives all of those emanating beams of light and warmth, Christ is going to shine the light of God's holiness and mercy and grace into this dark world. And then beyond light out of darkness, there is joy out of despondency. The people were in despair. They were in such despair. And listen very closely because when we feel despair in our lives, when we go through dark nights of the soul, the temptation is for us to go deeper and deeper into it and to look for ways out that don't make any sense. This is why people self-medicate. It's why they do a thousand different things to make them feel better about the despair and the despondency in their souls. The people here, as I've already read, were running to mediums and necromancers. They weren't going to God's means. They weren't running to the Lord. They weren't fleeing to the prophet Isaiah. And, And yet, notice what Isaiah says in this letter. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, this is what's interesting. There is is no external joy in Judah circumstantially at this time. And yet Isaiah speaks about this coming messianic blessing in such an extent, to such an extent that it's as if it's already happened even though it's not going to happen for another 700 years. That's amazing. There's not going to be any more gloom. Where there was despair, there is joy. As joy at the harvest. And then, Isaiah says, the third blessing of this coming Messiah is deliverance, liberation. Notice this, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder The rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. God is saying he is going to set his people spiritually free. Listen, this morning, you need spiritual freedom more than anything. More than anything. We need spiritual freedom. Jesus came, he said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. And then he says, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
In that first sermon, Jesus preaches in Nazareth in Luke 4, he, he quotes Isaiah that he was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's what you are by nature. We are slaves to sin by nature. We are in bondage by nature. And yet the message of the coming Redeemer, the coming Messiah, is that God is going to break the yoke of burden. God is going to take the staff off his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor off of him. He's going to set him free. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now here's what's amazing. Notice, notice the end of verse 4. The Lord is going to give us a little intimation here about how those blessings are going to come. Notice what he says at the end of verse 4. You have broken the burden. You have broken it as on the day of Midian. Now, what was the day of Midian? The day of Midian was the day when Gideon, you'll remember, had his troops, and God said there's too many of them. And he went through that whole process of cutting back Gideon's troops, and so Gideon was left with 300 men that lapped water like dogs. And God said, now you're going to take these clay pots and you're going to put them over these torches and you're going to surround the camp of Midian and then you're going to break the pots and you're going to see the victory that I give you. And the point of Gideon and that battle against Midian is that Gideon didn't do anything to gain the victory. The Lord gained the victory. The point of Midian is that Gideon actually didn't do anything. It was a foolish means. It was a foolish thing the Lord told him to do. And the Lord said, there are too many. I will get victory by myself. And what Isaiah is saying here is that the light out of darkness, the joy out of despondency, the liberation out of bondage is only going to come from the Lord doing it apart from you and apart from his people. He actually doesn't tell them to do anything. This is marvelous. God is saying, I am going to do what I did in the day of Midian, but I am going to do it to the nth degree. I'm going to do it salvifically for your salvation. Um, now we know here that he not only gives the blessings of the coming Messiah, but he tells us about the nature of him. Notice verse 6, those famous words, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You know, it's interesting, a number of years ago I thought about the fact that whenever someone sends out a birth announcement. They often say to so-and-so, a baby boy was born and he weighs so much and this is his name. And, and this is a birth announcement. Isaiah is weaving into his Christmas letter a birth announcement. But instead of saying to Mary, which he said in Isaiah 7.14, the virgin will conceive, instead of saying that, notice what he says, for to us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. What is going to be the remedy to the problem that Israel is experiencing under bondage? What is going to be the remedy of Israel's bigger problem and our bigger problem of our own spiritual darkness and depravity? What is the remedy? A child, a child will be born, a son will be given. This is remarkable. Isaiah is, 
hearer in a very real sense saying, the hope of all the ages is going to be fulfilled. You remember how often we talk about that first prom- promise, that first prophecy, Genesis 3.15, that, that God would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between his seed and her seed. And that's, that's the first preaching of the gospel. God says, I'm going to give a male offspring. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then that seed promise is carried through, isn't it? It's given through Noah to Abraham, then to David, that Abraham would have a seed and David would have a seed. And, and, and now, after all those many centuries in which Israel had been waiting, and, and to get this, you have to understand if you were a believer in Israel, and there were not many, but if you were a believer in Israel and you were a woman, you would have thought, am I the one? Is God going to give this son through me? Is he going to come from me? And now Isaiah is saying he is going to come in the, in the very womb of the church, as it were. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. He's going to come to the covenant people. He's going to come to his own. He's going to be born of a woman. He's going to be born under the law. The eternal son is going to come, and he's a free gift. He's a free gift. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't say this to you this morning. The only way for you to benefit from Christ is to receive him as what he is in truth, an absolutely free and gracious gift from God. You know, when, when Scripture talks about Christ, it often uses the language that he uses of giving himself. The son gives himself up to the cross. He gives himself up for his people, and yet God the Father is there, and he's giving. God the Father is giving his Son, um, and he's giving his Son to sinners. This is marvelous. It doesn't matter what kind of darkness you have been engaged in. It doesn't matter. What Isaiah is saying is, for to us, all of us sinners— child is born, a son is given, so that you can know you can embrace him if you know that you're a sinner. You can freely embrace him. He is the gift of God to sinners. Um, Notice what Isaiah says there about the nature of this child. The government shall be upon his shoulders. Uh, A number of years ago, someone sent me a whole bunch of booklets that they had written and self-published. Those usually go in the trash where they belong. Um, and one of the books was on Isaiah 9-6. And, and the point of the book was that America was prophesied of to be on the shoulders of Jesus. No, that is not what Isaiah is saying. I will argue with you about that. I will assert that as dogmatically as I can. He is talking about the kingdom of God. Remember, the context of this prophecy is that Ahaz is that wicked king. And God is saying, I am going to establish my kingdom without your help, Ahaz. I am going to fulfill the Davidic promise. I am going to establish my kingdom worldwide. Notice this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is going to be a king like no king in the history of the world. 
This is going to be a king whose kingdom transcends the nations of the world, who has a people belonging to him out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is going to be one who is greater than David, one who is greater than Solomon. And notice this, he says, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. That's the great promise about the nature of this child. He is going to be a king like no other king. I may have mentioned this to you. There's a great meditation in one of Martin Luther's sermons on Simeon and Anna, the elderly uh, man who has been waiting to see the Lord's Christ and that elderly widow who has been serving God with fasting and prayers in the temple. And as Mary comes into the temple and as Simeon and Anna come in and they all converge and, and Mary's holding Christ and, and Simeon takes him up in his arms and, and he says, this one is to be a light to the Gentiles. This shabby beggar baby, Luther says. And this is what Luther says in that section. He says, that, that Simeon rushes right up and he denominates him a king, a king greater than all the kings on the earth. Luther says, by all human reason, he should see nothing but a poor beggar baby in shabby clothes, but his eyes see far past his human reason. He sees nations and kingdoms under the rule of this child. That's who the Christ that we profess to trust in is. He is a king greater than all the kings of the earth. We were at Lewis's barbecue last night and that big mural, Hail to the King. My sister said, oh no, that's not good. I said, well, he didn't say he was the king of kings. He said he's the king of brisket. Jesus is the king of all kings and he holds the hearts of the kings of the earth in his hand, and he turns them as the watercourses wherever he will. And what God is saying here is that there is going to be one who establishes his everlasting kingdom. Now, I want you to notice verse 6. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That is just shorthand for denoting his strength, that he will bear the burden, that he will lift his people up, and yet, I was reminded this week of this awesome meditation. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said in the Gospels, there is only one thing that is ever said to be said on the shoulder of the Lord Jesus, and that was a cross. And how is this child, how is this son going to establish his rule in your life? He's going to take up that cross, and he's going to take all of your darkness, all of your despair, all of your bondage on himself, He's going to shoulder that burden under the wrath of God. He's going to be nailed to the tree for your unrighteousness and mine. And by doing that, he is going to establish the kingdom of God. And it should not be remarkable to us that over the cross was that inscription, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. His kingdom shall have no end. He will order and establish it forever. Now that means, if I can say this this morning, that means that when we see the world around us embracing more and more and more darkness, or at least evidently placarding that darkness 
as we see, we need to remember that God has already secured the light that has broken into this dark world, and God has already said that his kingdom will be established forever, and that it will grow, and that it will spread from the sea to the ends of the earth. And so we have every reason to be optimistic and hopeful about the success of the gospel because God has promised to do this. And Isaiah, remember I said this, is saying this as if it's already done. For unto us a child is born. He wouldn't be born for another 700 years. For unto us a son is given. It's as good as done. Listen, you and I need that as an anchor for our souls because if we don't have that as an anchor for our souls, we will be driven and tossed by every circumstance of life. Now, I just very briefly want us to consider the name of this child. You know these words so well. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, there are four titles here. Some have broken them up into five. There are four titles here. And each of these names denotes some unique characteristic about who this child is and how he's going to accomplish what he came to do. He is first going to be the source of all true spiritual wisdom. He is going to be the wonderful counselor. I was away at a company of pastors retreat a few weeks ago, and I think we talked about the absolute uptick in counseling that's happened over the last 20, 30 years. More and more people feel like they need a counselor. More and more people finally bite the bullet and get a counselor. And, and, and here, what Isaiah is saying is there is one who can not only give counsel in a way that no one else can give counsel, there is one whose counsel is beyond wonder. There is one whose words are going to penetrate deep into the very recesses of our hearts. There is one who's going to be able to stand and say, don't be anxious. Look at the, look at the flowers. Look how they neither toil nor spin, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not like them. There's going to be one who can say, don't, don't worry about tomorrow. You can't make one hair change colors. You can't add one inch to your stature. Don't worry about that. There's one that's going to say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy and laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. There is no counselor that can say to you, come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls, but there is in Christ. Um, so much so that when the Pharisees sent that the, the, the officers to arrest Jesus in John 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they come back, and they're like, why didn't you arrest him? They say, no man ever spoke like this man spoke. And when the multitudes are walking away from the Savior in John chapter 6, and Jesus turns to the disciples and says, will you go away also? Peter says, where will we go? To whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. He is the wonderful counselor. His lips are dripping with honey. His words are like wine. His lips are full of grace and truth. He is the wonderful counselor. He is secondly the mighty God. He not only gives 
counsel, he gives power. He gives power. He is the mighty God. Notice that Isaiah doesn't just say he is God. That would have been sufficient. He says he is mighty God. He is the one that can do everything. He is the one who can redeem us from sin and Satan and death by his weak death on the cross, but because of his divine power in his person. Um, We need counsel. We need the power of God at work in us. We get that in Christ. He is the everlasting Father. This is not to say that the Son is the Father. It's, it's, it's a term of uh, a character of his office. You need one who is compassionate. You need one who was tempted in all points, even as we are yet without sin. You need one who, who knows the afflictions of his people. You need one who can come along like a loving, compassionate father to nurture, to tenderly care. Remember, this is the one who says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. If your faith is low, he doesn't come along to break the reed or put the wick out. He is is the everlasting father. He says, here am I and the children God has given me. And then he is maybe most significantly the prince of peace. You asked, if you asked people, what is the greatest need in the world? And, and maybe this started just after the war that was to end all wars, and it didn't end all wars. They would say, we need peace. We need worldwide peace. I think I told you we stopped taking prayer requests on our visitor card the first year I was planning a church because we said, how can we pray for you? Pray for world peace. I'm like, that was, seemed like the sanctimonious thing to pray for. But here, there's a recognition. We need peace. We need peace in our souls. We need peace with God. We need peace with one another. And what God is saying is this child, the very nature of this child, his name is going to be the Prince of Peace. Listen to this, John Newton. John Newton says, and this is so beautiful, I'm sorry, John Calvin says, when we are inwardly tossed by various tempests, when Satan attempts to disturb our consciences, let us remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace and that it is easy for him quickly to allay all of our uneasy feelings because he came to bring victory and he won the victory on the cross. He broke the bondage for himself and he broke it by himself. That means he's already made peace for you through the blood of his cross. The peace that you long for in your soul from the burdens of your sin, the guilt of your sin, the shame of your sin, the, the, the power of that sin, it's already been made through the shed blood of Jesus. He is our peace, Paul says. And, and he distributes that peace as we trust in him. He says, come to me for counsel. I'm the wonderful counselor. Come to me for power. I am the mighty God. He says, come to me for compassion. I am the everlasting father. He says, come to me for peace because I am the Prince of Peace. That's amazing. You know, Isaiah gave us one of those titles back in 714. The virgin would have a son. His name would be Emmanuel, God with us. And then when we come here, he says, let me show you how much more is in him. Let me show you all the sides, all the angles, all the fullness of Christ. 
And that's, that's really how even when we've had hard years, trying years, spiritually failing years, we can come to a passage like Isaiah and say, God has promised to give light out of darkness, joy out of despondency. He's promised to give liberation where there's bondage because unto us a child is born, unto us a son has been given. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would um, cause these truths to work deeply in us. We pray that we would know them more than just in our minds. We pray, our God, that you would make us to feel our need for the, the light that you have promised to bring out of darkness, the joy out of despondency, the liberation out of bondage. We pray that you would fix our eyes on the Christ, the child that was born to us, the son that was given to sinners like us. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us to find our place squarely in his kingdom, to willingly submit to his government, to receive him as the gift that you have freely given us for our redemption. And so, our God, we pray that we would know these benefits today in our lives, in our souls, in our fellowship, in our homes. And so we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.